0: Here we go. Episode 21, minicast. More on COVID-19. What are the clinical presentations of critically ill patients with Dr. Nick Mark? Let's do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We have been getting a fantastic feedback on our COVID-19 content, and so we're just Going to continue to pump that out as soon as we get interviews and and give you the latest updates. So today is our second discussion with Dr. Nick Mark on the clinical presentation that we see amongst the patients that are landing in his ICU. And this is most valuable for clinicians to get a sense of what to expect, what to see when new COVID-19 patients are coming through the door. And so honestly, we're just going to get right to it mini cast. But without further ado, Dr. Nick Mark.
1: I wanted to make something that you could stick in your pocket medicine or just stick in your scrub pants, you know, that you could refer to. And, yeah. you know, running through here, a couple of points that were, impo- that were important learnings for me and my colleagues here in Seattle. Fever is not a very reliable indicator. Only about half of the patients have fever on presentation. Wow. Only about 85% have fever during their illness at all. Mm-hmm. So don't don't use um, the lack of fever uh, as an indicator or as, a, you know, some sort of rule out. Interesting. The second interesting. clinical point that I thought was really interesting was cough is a common presenting symptom. Dyspnea, somewhat common. URI is, that, is the of symptoms are actually quite rare. And some fraction, uh, in China, it was higher. In the US, it's maybe lower but maybe about uh, 10 or 15% of people present with GI symptoms. There's some hint from the literature in China that those patients may do worse.
0: Like diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah, wow, okay.
1: So in terms of clinical presentation, those are good things to think about. You know, I think uh, early on, finding out about travel history was really important. At this point, I think uh, eliciting a history of travel may not be that useful because Mm -hmm. most cases that we see are probably gonna be acquired from the community. Right. In terms of labs, I think the the ones that are really valuable um, pearls to remember are that these patients often have leukopenia and specifically lymphopenia. That's a mm-hmm. pretty common finding. Procalcitonin, you know, uh, is uh, controversial on a normal day. Uh, here, you know, like most viral infections, it's low, but there are some rare cases of people who have a secondary infection or super infection.
0: Super infection.
1: So again, you know. Low procalcitonin is, is a, a strong suggestive sign, but high procalcitonin I wouldn't use, to, I wouldn't use as a rule out. Yeah. And then in terms of imaging, so I think probably the most important thing to remember, which is not on my sheet, is that many patients have normal imaging, and especially, especially a presentation. So the fact that somebody has a normal chest X-ray does not preclude having COVID. If they do have an abnormal chest X-ray, it's likely to be with hazy peripheral opacities. Um, the CT will likely show ground glass. That seems to be very common. There's lots of other things that that have been reported, but I've only seen ground glass. There's some exciting work going on with point-of-care ultrasound. Looks like you, know, you, can, you can screen to see if people have a lot of B lines using ultrasound. Mm-hmm. You know, There's some suggestion that Uh, that may be useful early on instead of contaminating the CT scanner um, and having to clean it. Um, I haven't seen an algorithm that really tied that all together for me, but I think, you know, stay tuned. There probably is going to be some great work there. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about isolation and precautions. One thing that I think is really valuable at a health systems level though, is how are you going to keep people out of the hospital? And so investing in telehealth programs where people who come to the come to ed with symptoms can be discharged home like with a pulse oximeter they can check their vitals they can enter them in an app and if things are abnormal they can come in like that's or they can get additional questions and come in i think that's the kind of
0: that's happening now
1: that's happening now wow okay and that's really exciting because if you can keep people out of the hospital number one uh most of them don't have it so you're preventing them from acquiring it noscomially yeah number two some of them have it and you're hopefully preventing them from spreading it. Right. Three, some of them have it and are going to do just fine. Actually, most of them who, who have it are going to do fine at home. Mm. And so you don't need to bring them into the hospital and endanger staff. Nice. So if you think about nice. this as a pyramid, right? I mean, we're as intensivists, we're at the top. We're dealing with the 10% who need the ICU, the 5% who need to be uh, mechanically ventilated. But got, we got to remember there's this whole pyramid below.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I think we've talked a lot about some of the treatment aspects of this. Mm -hmm. You know, the the pendulum has definitely swung towards a fluid sparing uh, strategy in general in the ICU. And I think that makes sense here. Mm -hmm. The people who develop florid respiratory failure from COVID are going to be intubated for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so, every drop that you put in is going to be very difficult to take out later.
0: As you said, it's usually single system disease, right? Like uh, most of them aren't presenting in septic shock where you're worried about volume resuscitation.
1: Right. And the other thing too is um, I still don't know enough about the uh, cardiomyopathy to to really say how common, how severe, is that even Mm. really a distinct clinical entity? But if it is, I think we can presume that being parsimonious with fluid is... A good strategy yeah
0: a second pause like it's a, a second reason not to or to be liberal or to be restrictive with the fluid
1: right little c conservative with the fluid yeah then in terms of uh we talked a lot about kind of what not to do so high flow nasal cannula bipap. there's some i think there i saw one paper where they looked at using a helmet interface for a BiPAP, yeah. which, you know, there was this study out of the University of Chicago a few years ago where they found that it was more tolerable by patients. I think that's encouraging. I It's exciting to see if um, if helmets become commonplace. Yeah. Um, I, I'm guessing, there's no evidence here, that that may be safer too because there's less of an air leak along your face. It's more yeah. of a tight seal. Makes sense. For the patients who wind up Intubated and on a ventilator, you know, we've been following the uh, lung protective ventilation, the ARDSnet protocol. I think most people, most people that I've talked to, have uh, have liked a high PEEP strategy. I I found that works pretty well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then for many patients, you know, progressing through the sort of what I call the seven P's, but the you know the sort of things we do for hypoxemic respiratory failure: PEEP, paralytics, proning, prostacyclins. Mm -hmm. what else? I think, you know, there's some experience with ECMO in this. Um, I have not seen that personally. I, I think, you know, if you're only seeing a few cases and you have the resources, I think that's a, that's one thing. I think, you know, if we have dozens of these patients, it's hard to see how we can manage that. If you, you know, every patient who's on ECMO is presumably one-to-one, um, they have a perfusionist in the room as well. It just Mm -hmm. becomes very difficult to sustain that especially if each of these people are going to be on ECMO for weeks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we should talk about the investigational therapies. Yeah, so, absolutely. So some patients have gotten remdesivir. It's not FDA approved. You can get it for compassionate use or on a study from the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. There's a whole process there. I have not had experience with any of the other drugs for this. Um, I know there's people who are passionate about tocilizumab. I've used Tosi for other conditions in the ICU. So people who have cytokine release syndrome after getting CAR T cells, Tosi works wonders there. I haven't personally used it or seen it in uh, COVID. I I think, you know, it'll be exciting to see if that's good. I know the manufacturer has made that drug available and it is approved. There's chloroquine where the evidence is really, really limited it would be great if it turned out to be an effective therapy because it's cheap, widely available. Mm-hmm. And then there's an HIV drug, Lipinavir, Ritonavir combo, which um, I think there's some, there's some early encouraging evidence. There's some clinical trials going on. I think the, my bottom line is I don't know if any of these work. Right. Nobody really seems to know if any of these work. I think seeing if your patient can enroll in a clinical trial is the most responsible way to do this because at least then they're contributing to a body of knowledge that helps us understand which of these work on the newest version of my one pager. There's a hyperlink there to Mm. all of the studies uh, that are going on. So you can see, you go to that list, you can see what studies are available and see if you can get your patient enrolled. If you're thinking about these investigational therapies. Awesome. Nick. Perfect. Lastly, what not to do. So I know there was a lot of use of oseltamivir for this in China that never really made sense to me because it's targeting, it's inhibiting a protein that the virus doesn't have. So right. a neuraminidase inhibitor, and the virus doesn't have neuraminidase. There's no evidence that that's effective that I've seen. So even though it's a drug we have and we and we use for something else, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use it here. Oh. Um, and then lastly, corticosteroids. So. I think the evidence is not just, we don't know. It's actually, we know not to
0: Really,
1: WHO and the CDC have, have recommendations not to use these, mm-hmm. you know, there may be individualized cases where somebody has concomitant COPD and you think they may benefit from steroids or somebody may have, you know, pressor refractory shock and you want to give them steroids for that reason. So I'm not saying don't, don't use steroids ever in this, but I think, you know, The the desire to just put put all comers on steroids is is not a good one. Don't follow it.
0: Mm -hmm. Amazing, Nick. Like the summary is so great and this is gold. And I think having a bit of knowledge in in terms of what to expect, I know at least for me, this is empowering. You know, it it gives you the sense that, you know, we can get through this and we will be able to deal with whatever comes in front of us.
1: For, for me too. I mean, the, the reason why I made this was because, you know, I learning about this, write, writing stuff down kind of made me feel like I knew something. And then mm-hmm. I think, you know, I have colleagues who are hemonc docs or ID docs or nephrologists who are being drafted into like an ICU risk pool. You know, there's mm-hmm. people who haven't been in an ICU since they were residents and suddenly they're facing the prospect of having to manage in the ICU again. And I, I think, you know, giving them a resource that, the same way you know I felt as a resident having that having that red book in my pocket made me feel confident it's nice to have something like that
0: amazing i gotta I gotta thank you buddy and I want to commend number one thank you for doing the show number two commend you for the great work you're doing locally and and saving lives my friend in a risky time and I know this is what we're paid to do, but you're you know you're doing it. You know what I mean? And, uh, I can't commend you enough for it. Thanks. And, um, really appreciate you sharing the knowledge. And I, I want to also let our listeners know, like Nick's real, man. Like he's, he's got a <laughs> three, three-year-old and a two month, two month is the, the little, yep, the new course. one. Max yeah, and yeah. And so he's, he's, uh, you know, he's, there's life outside of, of work here too. He's managing a family as we heard earlier. And,
1: uh, I think it's really important to stay safe at work. Um, so, so, you know, you, you don't get sick, but also to, um, make sure that you and your significant other do not kill each other when you're locked up at home. (laughs) That's another important survival, survival skill.
0: Yeah. No, I, I hear you big guy. I hear you.
1: I I think I already said this, but just one, one last plug for this. Sure. No, absolutely. I've been trying to, whenever I start to say the word patient, try to sub in people or person Mm -hmm. you know because i think it's very easy to forget that people people get this Mm -hmm. right um the icu can be a dehumanizing place when people are hooked up to machines they can't talk they can't interact and especially when not not only are they isolated because we have to wear all this gear to to interact with them but we're scared to interact with them we want we don't want to go in the room i think it's important to remember that, that these are people you know and and uh, that a little bit of compassion goes a long way because it's it must be really scary to be going through this as a patient.
0: A great reminder once again, Nick. Thanks so much for doing this. And if it's okay with you, we might get in touch if uh, we have more questions uh, yeah. on the other side of the border here, buddy.
1: All right. Sounds good. Um, stay safe, man.
0: Yeah, you too. Thank you everybody for listening. To our second discussion with Dr. Nick Mark. I hope this was of value, especially to the frontline clinicians that are out there. And uh, I hope this helps you stay safe and more confident when taking care of critically ill patients. I want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible.com. There's going to be links to how to sign up uh, in the show notes, um, which also obviously helps support the show. And any comments, leave at quadcast99 at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Quadcast, as well as Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And uh, like I said in the intro, we're going to continue to bring out uh, COVID-19 content. And let us know what you want to hear. And we're going to do our best to oblige. Stay safe, everybody. Take care.